I think if there is one thing that has been characteristic of our culture in the past couple of years, it has been divisions, multiple divisions, and I think most of us would have to confess many of the divisivenesses that we see out in the world have entered into the doors of many churches as well. And it doesn't seem that even Christians can agree on politics or how to deal with viruses or how to deal with the governor's or the president's mandates. And so we have walked through a couple of very trying years, at least for the church. And it is by no accident that we come to this part of the Lord's Prayer in John 17, where we'll turn in just a moment, where we see the passion of the heart of Jesus Christ, our Savior, is for the unity of the church. And for this to happen, the church has to be the church. The church has to be the church under our head, who is Jesus Christ. And so it's to him that we're going to look this morning for our instruction, our encouragement, because I think I would say, at least on behalf of our church, God has blessed us with a measure of unity, and to that we must give our thanks to God, because he's the one that's made it so. But we have an obligation here too, and I want you to listen first to the words of the Apostle Paul from Philippians chapter 2, who speaks of our salvation as something that we need to be good caretakers of. Philippians 2, verse 12, So then, my beloved, just as you've always obeyed, not as much in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. In our study of the Lord's Prayer in John 17, Jesus has exposed his heart, his desire for his church, his people, his redeemed ones. And we've seen that in verse 13 as Jesus prays for the fullness of his joy to be within us. He's prayed for sanctification or the holiness of his church. And that holiness comes by the word of God's truth. In verses 18 and 19, Jesus has expressed his passion for the mission of the church. And we've just heard for the Gideons. We join with them and others that preach the gospel, that take the word of God to this world. This is the heart of the Savior. But we come now to the final part of the Lord's Prayer, Jesus first praying for himself in the first five verses, then praying for his disciples, the twelve. Beginning in verse 20, Jesus begins to pray for all who will come to faith as a result of that apostolic and early church ministry. So if you have your Bibles, please join me in John chapter 17. We're going to consider the final installment here for the Lord's Prayer as Jesus spends these last few hours with his disciples in the upper room, in this farewell discourse, as he makes his way to the Garden of Gethsemane in preparation for his own sacrifice on the cross. And Jesus prays this prayer before his disciples. I do not ask, verse 20, on behalf of these alone, speaking of the twelve, but for those also who believe in me through their word. And that includes every believer down through the ages, that they may all be one, and even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. The glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one just as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may be perfected in unity, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you have loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, be with me where I am, so that they may see my glory, which you have given me, for you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, although the world has not known you, yet I have known you, and they have known that you have sent me. And I have made your name known to them, and will make it known, so that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Father, as we come together under this word, this passage, this prayer of your Son, 
We pray that by your spirit, you will teach us and instruct us. Help me to speak clearly and well on these things. But I pray that your spirit would open up all of our hearts and ears to hear what your spirit has to say to his church this morning. I pray that you will find us receptive and humble in your presence, but also prepared to do the work on our salvation that our God is also doing. And we pray this in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. In this final installment of the Lord's Prayer from John 17, Jesus turns his attention to the greater church. Having talked to the twelve, and of course in verse 20, what Jesus said had to the twelve previously, in verse 6 to verse 19, he was also saying to every believer. But now in verse 20, he turns his attention specifically to those that are going to come to faith down through the ages as a result of that apostolic and early church ministry. And what this really pictures is the expansion of the gospel as Jesus begins by praying for himself, and then he prays for the twelve, and then he turns his attention on the growth of the church, all believers. In his commentary on John, by James Boyce, he connects each of the qualities that Jesus prays for with a specific relationship. In other words, going back to verse 13, where Jesus prays for joy, that joy is within the individual believer's heart. And therefore, he's praying for the believer in relation to the joy that will be in himself. The quality of sanctification that we see in verses 14 to 17 speaks of the relationship of the believer to God himself. And then as we look at verse 18, or we had looked at verse 18 and 19, and the mission of the church or the service, the outreach, the evangelism of the church, it speaks of the believer's relationship with the unsaved world. But notice as we start in verse 20, the relationship of the qualities that Christ desires for his church is amongst us. In other words, our relationship with other believers. And I'll be focusing on unity in particular, but love as well. The unity and love that we are to have within ourselves for other believers. This is the corporate relationship that we have one with another and that corporate relationship that we plural, have with God himself. And with this expansion of the gospel comes an expansion of God's glory. And that's why the theme of this prayer we have focused on has been the glory of God. Christ opens up praying for himself that he would glorify the Father and the Father would glorify him. He then prays for the twelve that they would do and be what he's called them to be for God's glory. And now again we see the prayer for the church It is all about the glory of God. You mean it's not about me? It's not about what serves me best or what gets me by in happiness in this world? Jesus is praying for us that we would glorify God and that we would experience that glory. And if you're here as a believer this morning, please know that just hours before the cross, Jesus Christ has you on his mind. He is praying for you here in this prayer, and for me as well. And we see here in verse 20, introduction to a new and larger company for those that the Lord prays for. And we're going to look at both the unity and the love of Christ, but we're also going to look at the passion that Jesus has for us at the end, that his people be together with him. So those three aspects we're going to look at this morning in the closing words of Christ's prayer the passion that Jesus has for our unity, the passion he has for love, and the passion he has for the gathering of the saints in his presence. Verse 20 identifies, at least in part, why the disciples are being sent out, as it says in verse 18 and 19. It is to proclaim a message. It is to declare a word that we know to be the gospel. As Jesus continued instructing his disciples after his resurrection and just before he would ascend into heaven, he said in Acts chapter 1 and verse 8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit 
has come upon you. And you shall be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem, all Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. In other words, the expansion of the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ and all that that gospel would, would produce. And it's from this ever-expanding mission that many, Jesus said, will believe in him through their word and through the continued proclamation of Christ by the ongoing growing church. So not only the apostolic ministry will be preaching, but the church that follows will continue to preach the gospel. And the result will be, as God promised Abraham, that his descendants by faith would be as numerous as the stars in heaven and the sand on the seashore. And this helps us to understand why unity is such a passion for the heart of the Savior. Because now you have more than just 12 sinners redeemed by grace. Now you have millions who are redeemed by God's grace. But we're still sinners. And any time we're going to gather together as redeemed sinners, we're going to struggle. And it's important that we know that the passion of the Savior is that we be one. And in studying this this week, I believe, at least my conviction is, our unity is something we pay little attention to. We appreciate it when we have it because God does that work for us. But we're also called because God is doing a work. That's what Paul said in Philippians 2. We are to work towards our salvation, not to save us, but in our salvation, we are continuing to work with fear and trembling, building in sanctification. Why? Because God is at work in us. The fact that God is working on our unity is incentive enough for us to be working on that unity as well. And the fact that there are now numbers of believers through the expansion of the gospel tells us we need to pay attention to what's on the heart of the Savior in regard to our unity. With such growth through the gospel, those numbers will need to be held together as one by the power of God. But it will also take our efforts in cooperation with the Spirit of Christ, as noted before. That Jesus prays for unity here in this way reveals his heart for his people on the matter. And the passion that Christ has for our unity is also made clear from a number of other New Testament passages, even the ones that warn us of divisiveness. And I'd like to to draw your attention to Titus chapter 3 for just a moment. Because this, like many other passages in God's word, is teaching us, hold on to the unity that Christ has done for us. Hold on to this work of unity. Build on it. Be watchful for it. Guard against division. And an example of the warning against division comes in Titus chapter 3 as Paul writes to Pastor Titus. They are ministering on a number of churches on the island of Crete. In verse 10 and 11, Titus 3, Paul writes, Reject a factious man after a first and second warning, knowing that such a man is perverted and is sinning, being self-condemned. Now that's strong language, isn't it? That is strong language. But if we compare that passage with what Jesus taught back in Matthew 18 in regard to church discipline, if you will recall, in Matthew 18, Jesus gives four steps for the church to deal with, this, with sin when it enters into the church. Here, Paul says, we're not even going to take four steps. If there's a divisive person after one or maybe two warnings, they're to be rejected. Why so severe? It tells us the passion that Christ has for our unity. And we should guard against any divisiveness that he's either produced within ourselves or false teachers bring in or if government intends to intrude on the church of Jesus Christ. We guard against divisiveness. This is the passion of the heart of Jesus Christ for his church because he has made us one by his own blood sacrifice. And we see similar passages in Romans 16, warning against divisiveness, or 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. But it's passages like these that help us to understand the passion that Jesus has for our unity, and especially in this prayer in John 17. 
What we may not have spent much, as much time understanding is what this unity is and what it is to accomplish. And several hints are given to us here in the prayer by Jesus Christ in John 17, beginning with what is our unity in Christ to look like? What is it to look like? It's important to know what Jesus is praying for here. And while we cannot give a a very comprehensive description of Christian unity in this hour, we can at least get a general overview. And I would suggest for those that are in the small groups Monday and Tuesday, this is a good subject to develop because there are so many scriptures in the New Testament that teach us this is what our unity looks like. This is what we're supposed to be doing in this unity. This is how we protect, we build, we nourish this kind of unity. This is how we guard against divisiveness. This is a good topic of discussion for Christians. And in verse 21 here in John 17, Jesus prays that we are one even as the Father and the Son are one and we are in him. In other words, our unity is going to be patterned after that which is seen within the Godhead between Father, Son, and we would say even Spirit. So that leads me to say, first of all, this is what our unity is not. This is what our unity is not. It is not describing a sameness where we are all exactly alike. We're not all carbon copies. We worship the one true God, don't we? But he is manifested in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit, three distinct and individual persons, each having their unique personalities, their individual roles, and positions of influence as they minister to our needs and accomplish redemption for sinful humanity. The Father determined a plan of salvation out of his love for sinners, but the Father did not go to the cross, did he? The Son took on flesh. And went to the cross. And while Jesus did die for his people to provide salvation and eternal life, and he did promise to never leave and forsake us, he, the Son, did not indwell us. The Spirit was sent to indwell us. And the Spirit guides us in all truth. He's inspired the biblical authors to pen the Word of God. But he, the Spirit, did not speak on his own. And we learned that in John 16. He only communicated what the Son had passed to the Spirit. There are three distinct persons, but one God. And this in Jesus' prayer is the model being given for our unity. Unity does not mean exact sameness. We're not perfect carbon copies of one another. God himself is one God, but each person within the Godhead remains unique in personality and in operation, so also this will be true of every believer. While we are united by a common redemption, we do not serve or function in exactly the same way. We will still have our own individual personalities, our own likes and dislikes, our individual past and history that God has used to form us differently. And as far as our function or operation is concerned, Jesus Christ equips us differently to serve one another, to serve his kingdom in different ways. I'd like you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 12 because here Paul describes the uniqueness of that which God equips us with to serve him. At the same time, listen to the words of our sameness, our differences, yet our unity. In 1 Corinthians 12, beginning verse 4, 7, 4 through 7, Paul writes, there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are varieties of ministries, but the same Lord. There are varieties of effects, but the same God who works all things in all persons. Notice the Spirit, the Lord Jesus Christ, and the Father. Same God. And that same God in three separate persons is working in the believer, giving to us variety in our gifts, varieties in ministries, and a variety of effects. Paul then goes on to describe our unity in serving Christ with these unique, different gifts 
He describes that as a human body. And that's a good way for us to look at ourselves. We're part of one body. But Paul goes on to say we're not all a foot or an ear or a mouth or the eyes. We're all different. We've been equipped differently. We share the same purpose in ministering our unique gifts for the common good. And we certainly share the same supplier of those gifts. We have the same indwelling Holy Spirit within us as believers. The same Father who is over all. We have the same Lord that we submit to. And these gifts that are given to us are going to minister to Christians in a way that causes us to resemble the same Savior. We are going to start to look alike, in a sense, because we should start to behave like our Savior. That's what these gifts are designed to do. And, it, and we can discern just from reading the 66 books of the Bible that is written by some 40 different authors that the same Spirit directs them all, but we can still see the individual personalities in the authors, can't we? And, and the, the educational backgrounds are different in each of the authors. Their past histories are different. But they're communicating the same message of God's truth. So also, our unity does not mean we're all exactly the same or that we lose our unique personalities. But like the Father, Son, and the Spirit, we are to be united even in our differences. And it's also true that we will not agree on every detail in regard to our faith. We're going to sit down and maybe have some disagreements about certain doctrines that maybe aren't quite as clear. And Paul even recognizes that in writing to the church in Rome. If you look at chapter 14, he gives room for us to respect matters of conscience that are different from one believer to the next. And at the same time, what we must agree on are the foundational doctrines of our salvation, like the deity and the humanity of Christ, his substitutionary atonement, Salvation or justification by faith alone apart from works in Christ alone, by God's grace alone. We agree and we hold to the authority of God's word as truth. Because someone who suggests that they don't believe the Bible to be the word of God is going to have trouble convincing any of us that they are truly Christian. So we agree on the authority of God's word. That's what Jesus prays for in John 17 and verse 17. We're to be sanctified or made holy by the truth. God's word is truth. So there will be sameness, but we're not exactly the same. We will still be unique. Secondly, as we look at the Godhead, we see something about what our unity is to be. What it will be, according to John 17, is a shared oneness Within the Godhead. Notice the wordings of Jesus in this prayer. Even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us. This first means that we're all found in Christ by faith. If we're truly a believer, we will be found in Christ by faith. It means that we've trusted in Christ to be our Savior the salvation provided by the foreknowledge of God and by the determination of his will. We've said, yes, I trust in that. I trust in God's son. I know I'm a sinner. It is the one true gospel and no other that holds us together as one. Some have described this unity as an organic and mystical unity. It is mystical because it resides in the unseen realm of God and it compares to the mystical union of Father, Son, and Spirit. We believe in the triune Godhead. There is one God. But can you explain one God in three persons? There's something of a mystery here. And I know that we're going to see more when we see Christ face to face as we enter into his presence on the day he calls us home. But right now, that's a difficult doctrine but it is very biblical. We have no ability to cause our mystical union in the body of Christ. It's entirely a work of God. It is God that brings us to his son. It is his spirit that causes us to be born again and grants to us the gift of faith by God's grace. It is not of works that any of us should boast. 
God makes us one with him and one with each other through his gospel. That's the mystical part. But the organic part of our unity is that we are related one to another. The word of God shows us how to build on this unity as we are related organically to to each other. And it's organic in that it is compared by the Apostle Paul to a human body. Where our spiritual health, our spiritual growth and our unity depends on our oneness of service and compassion for each other. That's what 1 Corinthians 12 is about. As I read Ephesians 4, that's what Paul is saying to the church. We grow as we gather together in one and as we receive the spiritual gifting from one another. If you separate yourself out from the organic body, are you going to grow? Will you be nourished if you separate yourself from the other spiritual gifts that the Spirit of Jesus Christ has given to grow us and to sanctify us? And I hope we would agree, no, we won't grow. We will be stunted in our growth if we separate ourselves from that organic union. We are part of the body of Christ. He is our head, and he nourishes his body by the spiritual gifts that he has given to each of us, whether it's teaching or mercy or service or for whatever he's given us. It is meant to nourish the body of Christ. Another picture of the organic unity of the church is how the scripture talks to us collectively as if we are a family. We're the family of God. Does that give you not a pretty clear organic picture? Because we know about our organic family, or our, our biological families, our temporal families, father and mother and children. We get that picture. That's the picture that God's word gives to us of the church. It is the family of God. And as we come to faith in Jesus Christ, we are adopted into that family and we are declared by God to be his children, but we are also brothers and sisters to one another. We are now related, if you are here today and in Christ, not by human blood, but by blood of the Savior. He has made us brothers and sisters and children of the living God. And we are to show loyalty and devotion to one another in that family relationship. And because by virtue of the blood of Christ, we are now united to God the Father and God the Son, our devotion to this spiritual family is first and foremost a devotion to God himself. This is our part. When we devote ourselves to one another, ministering and serving one another, looking out for each other, encouraging each other, instructing, and sometimes confronting sin in each other. We are loving and caring for God's redeemed family. When we're showing devotion to each other in this unity, we're showing our devotion to God himself. And I have no trouble in saying that our loyalty and devotion to God's eternal family must have priority even over our earthly and biological families. That might bother some here today. But this is not to say that we are to serve God's family at the neglect of our biological families. The scripture speaks to that. We're not to neglect our earthly families. But how much more should we neither neglect the family of God? Rather, our heavenly father must have preeminence even over the realm of earthly fathers. And to put it more directly, my devotion to God must be greater than my devotion to my wife or my children. And while no Christian parent should be guilty of neglecting his own children, how much more should we never neglect God's children who are also our brothers and sisters in Christ? We can't neglect that. This is God's family that we're talking about. This is the unity that is on the heart of the Savior just before he goes to the cross and pours out in blood to make us one, to make us his own. And this is a family, by the way, that's going to last for eternity. Not just this lifetime. It will last for eternity. Our unity also means that we must have the same purpose in life, the same eternal perspective, the same objectives found with God. 
And we can think of this in terms of our spiritual unity because we are bound together by the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. The spiritual unity is again a work of God. He accomplishes this in the lives of sinners who have been called by his grace into salvation. Though God accomplishes this unity on our behalf, we are nonetheless called to walk within this spiritual union. In other words, we submit to the Holy Spirit that indwells us, right? When we talk about the fruit of the Spirit, how we build on the unity of the church by walking in that fruit. Love, joy, peace, patience, gentleness, kindness, self-control. This is our part to live in that spiritual unity. And as well, Paul writes in Galatians 5, putting off the deeds of the flesh, immorality, impurity, sensuality, strife, envy, and so forth. That's our human part. That's the believer's part. God has spiritually formed us together by giving to us the indwelling presence of the Spirit but how we as believers need to learn to cooperate with that spirit, to give way to that spirit, to pay attention to the word that the spirit gives to us. So adding to the mystical and the organic union and the spiritual unity, we also need to consider the unity that we have in truth, the word of God. As Jesus prays here in John 17, we are sanctified by the truth of God's word, which means we're set apart for the purposes of God, to live by and in his holiness. And this begins the moment we respond by faith to the gospel message that he's proclaimed to us. And it continues to build as we submit to the lordship of Jesus Christ. In verse 23, we read that we are perfected. We are to be perfected in unity. As we are found more and more submissive to the truth of God's word, we are perfected more fully by him. And as we do so, we are more fully united with each other. In other words, the closer that individual believers draw to Christ in obedience to his word, the closer we draw to each other. And this is one of the basic principles that we teach in pre-marriage counseling. As husband and wife, you want to bond yourself together? Grow closer to Christ. Grow closer to Christ. It's the same with the church. If we are going to be as one, united in the truth, it means more and more we're going to be submitting to the authority of Christ according to his word. We are not only growing closer to God, we're closer to each other. We're being bonded more perfectly to one another. What moves... What moves so counter to this unity in our modern church culture is when God's truth is set aside in order to gain some kind of unity with other believers or other religions. It is what is often referred to as ecumenicalism. When differing religions decide they want to be at peace with one another or they want to labor together for the common good of humanity, They begin to dispense with the doctrines of Scripture and they try to find common ground in their respective beliefs. It would be like if the Gideons said, well, we want to be at friends with the Islam people, the Muslim. So we're not only going to pass out the Word of God, we're going to pass out the book of the Quran. That is a compromise that I trust will never be found in the Gideon ministry. It shouldn't be found at the church as well. We cannot compromise the doctrines of Scripture simply to be united with the world around us or with other religions. We are only united as we are bound together under the truth of God's Word. We hold fast to Christ, in other words. A couple of weeks ago, we talked about Romans 12. As much as is possible with us, be at peace with all men. There are things we can compromise personal tastes, preferences, but not the word of God. We cannot compromise the truth of God. Our unity in the truth of God's word grows stronger the more we walk in obedience and humble submission to Christ. And while much more could be said of what Christian unity is and is not, we move now to consider 
what our Christian unity in Christ accomplishes. There is a mystical and organic union. There is a spiritual union, an aspect of our unity that is formed by the truth of God's word. But what does it accomplish? What is this unity doing? Jesus says in verse 21 at the end of the verse that our unity is a testimony to the world that Jesus Christ was sent from God. And this repeated again in verse 23, which goes further to say that the world will know of the love that God has for his people, even as God has loved his son. In other words, when the world sees the genuine biblical unity of the church formed by the word of God, it convicts men and women of the truth of Jesus Christ and the saving love that God has for sinners. We have also learned from the Upper Room Discourse that the world is going to hate believers because it hated Christ first. Nonetheless, with some in the world, God will use the testimony of the church's unity to convict and to draw sinners into saving faith in the gospel. This is what Jesus is here teaching in his prayer. As he prays these words before his disciples, and now it is inscripted onto the pages of scripture for us to hear as well. What is he saying to the church? Our unity is a testimony for the gospel. It preaches Christ to the world. Most of the world will hate us for our unity. But with some, God will draw these ones out from the world and to himself as they look at the church and how they're united together in Christ. Verse 22 adds that the glory that the Father has given to the Son the Son has given to his people in producing this evangelistic unity. The glory that God has given to his Son, the Son has given to his church. What's that in reference to? I was reading in one of my commentaries written by J.C. Ryle. He gave seven different possible suggestions for what this glory is that the Father has given to the Son and the Son has given to the church. And by different authors, different scholars. There simply isn't agreement. And I don't know that I'm going to answer this for you either. But I'm going to give this suggestion based on the context of this prayer. And going back to the first five verses where Jesus has the cross in view. And he says to the Father, Now, Father, I'm about to be nailed to a cross. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. What glory did God give to his Son? He gave the glory of the cross of God's redemptive love, the gospel. That was not fulfilled by the Father or the Spirit. It was given to the Son to bring glory to God, to show the world God's redemptive, saving love by the sacrifice of his own Son. So I would suggest, perhaps, the glory that the Father has given to the Son is seen in the cross. And how is that glory then seen in the church? Christ has given that glory to the church. Well, we've entered into that redemptive love, haven't we? By faith in Christ. And we live in that glory. And what Jesus is saying here in the prayer, we are to preach that glory. We're to show that glory to the world as we're united together under the gospel of grace, under the cross. What Christ has sacrificed and provided for his church is now a testimony or a glory of God's saving grace, his redemptive love. Does it begin to tell you how important our unity is? What if we're broken? What if we're bickering and divided with silly and ridiculous arguments? Like a face mask or something like that. John, throughout this gospel, has repeatedly emphasized the divine nature of Jesus Christ as the Son of God. And this declares the union of Father and Son, a glory that should be evident in the fellowship together that we have. And when it is, when that glory is evident in our unity, in our fellowship, we are a witness to the world of God's saving grace through His Son. Therefore, our unity, as produced by God's glory given to us by His Son, is a testimony of his salvation to the world. We must still proclaim the gospel, but surely we can see the importance of gospel living if we're going to be gospel preaching. How important 
is our unity then if we're going to preach Jesus Christ to the world. Imagine what the world thinks when we share the gospel with them and we're broken and divided by petty arguments or insignificant debates or when we just don't get along or when we are consumed with jealousies or nitpicking or when we share the gospel but we have little to no fellowship with the church at all. For not even united with the church. Again, J.C. Ryle said, How often Christians have wasted their strength in contending against their brethren instead of contending against sin and the devil. How repeatedly they have given occasion to the world to say, When you have settled your own internal differences, we will believe. Now, the world will not believe because we settle our differences. They will only believe as God moves in their heart. But you can understand from the world's perspective how they might look into a church that is broken and divided, and they say, and we're supposed to believe that? We're supposed to believe in that Jesus? Our unity is important. It is the passion of our Savior that we build and nourish our unity, that we're careful with it, that we guard against divisions. And just from this brief overview, even looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 12, a significant part of our unity is serving and caring for one another through the gifts distributed to us by the the Spirit of Christ. And just from this brief overview of the unity of believers that Jesus prays for, we can see how important it is that we participate in the work of unity, that we cooperate in the work of unity that God does among us. We should then be as passionate to pray for it as Jesus was, and we should be active in building on that unity. But then Jesus continues, and again, having this this critical subject of unity in mind and on his heart, he moves in verse 23 down through the end of the chapter to expose his heart for love, which is an integral part of our unity. It is a love that is found within the Godhead, between Father and Son. But it is also a love that God has for us and that God communicates to us. It's one of the communicable attributes of God. In other words, He transfers, He he teaches us how to love. He infuses His love into His people. And this love of God is again an integral and essential part of our unity with each other And with the Lord God. The love that Jesus prays for here is necessary for our unity to be perfected. As it says in verse 23. And this tells us that our unity together has got to be formed by love. It also tells us that this love unity is a key to our completeness in Christ. Our past study of this prayer let us know that we are to be sanctified in the truth. It is what the, spirit, what the Savior prays for on our behalf. Now, sanctification, again, is being set apart for God, for his purposes, for his pleasure, for his righteousness, and by his truth, and for his glory. So when we think of being separated or sanctified by the truth of God's word, I'll bet we likely envision our progressive sanctification, Right? As individual believers, we are to grow in holiness and obedience with Christ. When we think about sanctification, our progressive holiness, do we not most often think about our individual and personal progress as a believer? And we will probably concern ourselves mostly with that end. And certainly that's part of our spiritual growth. But we cannot ignore what Jesus describes here as our need to be perfected. Or perfected in what? Unity. Perfection then becomes a significant part of our sanctification. I'm not just growing as a believer. I'm growing with other believers. And together with the church we are growing. Our holiness then is not so individualistic as we may think. Jesus has the corporation of the church in mind here. Leon Morris, and this quote is on the back of your bulletins, he he quoted 
John Wesley by saying, the Bible knows nothing of solitary religion, therefore a man must find companions or go out and make them. If you find yourself alone, find some companions in Christ or go make them. Morris then builds on this by adding to Wesley's comment, this is an important aspect of New Testament Christianity. It is not a faith that can be lived out in solitude. We who follow Christ must bear in mind that Christ was one with the Father, and in that spirit, he expects his followers to be one with him and one with each other. Clearly, what Morris is emphasizing here about our unity is what is on the heart of Christ in this prayer. But Jesus further establishes this unity as that which must be formed by the love of God. A love that has for us, a love that God has for us, and a love that He has provided for us so that we might love each other. Two things to consider here. First, the display of God's love to the world, verse 23 and verse 24. The display of God's love in our unity before the world. Rather than think of our church community as our own private little worship center where we don't really care what the world thinks of us, Jesus is concerned about what the world sees in us. We're we're not responsible for what the world thinks of us, but Jesus is concerned about what the world sees in us. When our unity is perfected, God uses this witness to reveal gospel truth to many within the world, at least to those whom God chooses to draw to his son. Because the rest of the world are going to remain haters of God. But those that God draws to himself by his grace, the church becomes a testimony, not only in our unity, but our unity of love. And this strongly reveals that the church corporate is used by God to testify that his son was sent into the world by him. Do you have a passion for the lost? The church is an integral part of the evangelism of Christ. Our unity testifies to the world that God loves his people even as God has loved his son. And verse 24 tells us that God loved his son before the foundation of the world. It is important to see that in this gospel witness, the world is not looking at God directly. The world is not looking at God as a person in this evangelistic movement. What is the world looking at? The church. The church of Jesus Christ is the picture of God. It is to be. The church cannot be preaching the gospel and bickering or divisive and insincere in its love. It can't be. Otherwise, we're going to give a perverted gospel picture to the very message that we preach. And from these words, what the world is to see in the church's oneness is that God sent Jesus Christ to this world as man's only Savior, and that God loves those whom he has saved through his Son, even as God has loved the Son himself. And this is a witness for God's love for sinners and the provision that he sent in his son to forgive men of their sins so that these forgiven ones would be joined together as God's special people. When the world looks at us as this special united people expressing love of God toward one another, what do they see? They see God's redemptive love. Here's a people that been touched by the cross. This is a God that loves sinners enough that he would send his son to die for them. That's what the world needs to see in us. We can't make them believe that, but it is important what the world sees. They need to see our unity in love. And how does the world know God loves us? How's the world going to know that? How's the world going to know God loves Monty enough to send his son to die for him? It's by how I love others and how you love me. That's what the world will see. The church's love unity then is a powerful and a visible testimony of God's redemptive love and what that love has accomplished. It has formed together a people once broken by sin, but now made one as a family by his divine love. So it's a testimony to the world. The display of God's love as seen by the world. Second. Verse 25 through verse 26, the display of God's love in his church. 
Here the display of God's love within his redeemed people, his family. Jesus continues, verse 25, by expressing how he has always known the Father, though the world has not known him. Even the world of religion has not known God. The world, whether religious or not, cannot know God apart from knowing the Son. This is what John has made clear in this gospel record. But the redeemed ones, they have known that Jesus was sent from God. We know Christ, and therefore we know God. Jesus is the true Son of God. But he is also sent to this world by God to be our Savior. The world does not know this. But Jesus made these things known to those that the Father has drawn to his Son, even through the witness of the apostles, and then later through the witness of the church. And Jesus will continue, he says, to make his truths known as he sends his spirit and he inspires the writing of his word. He's going to continue to make it known. And to what end? Well, we would say to make this just personal, so that the love with which God has loved his son may be in us and Christ in us. That's the prayer here. So that the love with which God has loved his son may be in us and Christ in us. God has loved his son a whole lot. And what Jesus is praying for is that divine love would be in us and Christ is in us. We're talking about divine love here, not the world's idea of love and not even our own limited human perception of love. What Jesus envisions in our unity is the love in us for each other that is also in God for his son. And for this to happen, Jesus must be in us by virtue of his indwelling spirit. Here again is a work of love that has to be accomplished by God, but it also has to find us working toward and cooperating with this divine love. We have to make use of this love. We have to live in this love. We have to learn of this love from his word. And it will be a love unwavering in his devotion to care for the needs of others. It will be a love that sacrifices for one another, puts the needs of others before our own. It's a love that will always be in accord with the truth, and therefore it is a love that can never embrace unrighteousness. It is a love that does not fail each other. The love that marks our unity will not fail in this life, and it will not fail in eternity. The love that perfects our unity is a witness of God's redemptive love for the world. And this brings us to one last point. I want to draw your attention back to verse 24 very quickly. The Savior's passion for togetherness. The day when we are gathered into his presence. Verse 24 brings us to something of a capstone, I believe, where Jesus said, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, be with me where I am, so that they may see my glory, which you have given me. For you loved me before the foundation of the world. This passage reminds me of Psalm 116. Precious in the sight of the Lord are the death of his godly ones. Death is hard for us. We lose something. There's sorrow and grief. But what does Jesus Christ think when one of his redeemed ones leaves this life and enters into his presence? It's precious, the psalmist writes. This is exactly what Jesus is praying for. I desire that they also, whom you've given me, be with me where I am, so that they can see my glory. This might be a bit of a contrast to what Jesus prayed back in verse 15 and verse 18, where he said to the Father, I'm not asking to take them out of the world. No, I want you to leave them there. And then, in verse 24, he says, Father, I'm anxious that they be with me. It may seem like a bit of a contrast, but if you recall, Jesus prayed that the disciples would not be taken out of the world, but they'd be kept from the evil one. And then Jesus later in verse 18 says, I've actually sent them into the world to be a witness for me so that more will come to faith in Christ and the gathering together of the saints will be even larger and more will see the glory of the Son. Jesus wants his people to be invested in the gospel ministry so long as he commissions each of us to do so. In other words, so long as we're living and breathing in this life, we are to be a witness for him. Our unity and our love in the church 
is a testimony to the world of his saving glory. And the church's gospel mission for Christ will see more brought to faith in him. And in the end, again, more will be gathered into the presence of Christ. What verse 24 communicates to us is that the ultimate passion of Jesus Christ is that those that he has redeemed with his blood would be in his presence. And if you're a believer here today, is that not where we're heading? That's the end of it all. That's the great glory for us in our salvation. The day will come when I'll be with Christ. I'll be in his presence. And I know that the scripture teaches us to long for that day. Remember Paul writing to Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 4. There's a crown of righteousness laid up for those that desire his appearing. We have a desire to be with Christ, but we are reminded Jesus said, I'm not praying to take them out of this world yet. They're to be in this world to represent me. This passage, however, is not talking about my desire to be with Christ. What it is telling me is my Savior has a desire to see me in his presence so that I can behold the beauty and the majesty of his glory, to see the dwelling place where there is no corruption, no sin, no pain, because his glory will reveal the brilliance of his perfect righteousness. And in his presence, we're going to know perfect love. We're going to see the glory of Jesus and the perfect love that he has for the Father and the Father has for the Son. And we're going to know that we are loved in the same perfect way. Right now, all of that glory is veiled just a bit. We see it in his word. And we believe it as much as our feeble faith will hold on to. But Paul says, the day will come when I'll see him face to face. And I will know the brilliance and the perfection of his glory. And what will that do for my faith? My faith will be realized. There will be no longer need for faith. Because Christ will be there before me and I will see his glory. And I will know absolute security. I will know absolute perfect safety. I will know absolute perfect peace, that my eternity is secure. I will see the blessedness of perfect righteousness. I will know love like I can't possibly experience here. If the great desire of the Savior is that we be present with him to see his glory and to know of God's love, then how much should this be an incentive for us to portray his glory to the world. Our unity, our love, it's so important here. Jesus is exposing his passion. I want my church with me, but I've left them there in the world. Why? So that the world can see my glory through their unity and their love. Knowing how much the Lord wants us to be with him should inspire us to desire the same whenever he is pleased to call us home. Yeah, I want to be with the Savior when he's ready to take me there. But until then, I am pleased to be here because I'm supposed to be reunited with you pack of sinners. I'm supposed to get along with you guys. And in our unity and in our love for one another, we have the opportunity to represent the glory of our Savior, the glory of the Father's redemptive love, the glory of the Father's love for his own Son and how we love each other in our unity just close with a couple of questions for you to consider. And maybe this will even be some subject of discussion for our small groups this week. How would you describe your personal devotion to the unity of God's Son? You personally, how would you describe that unity to the family of God? And taking this beyond saying, well, I'm saved, that's a perfect start. But how would you describe your unity with, say, this body of believers? Secondly, how do we actively cultivate divine love for one another? We know God infusing his love, but how do we actively cultivate that love, show that love, nourish that love, guard that love? And three, how does the Lord's passion for the presence of his people to be with him influence your unity and your love for the church? It's part of the prayer here. So it is meant to inspire something in us. How does it influence my unity and love for the church? Father in heaven, we thank you for this very beautiful and majestic prayer. A time of intimacy between your son and yourself. 
but a time of intimacy that was deliberately exposed by the Savior to the 12 apostles and the church to follow in the written word. We are meant to hear these words and to learn from them and to hear the heart of the Savior, his passion for the church. I pray that you would grow us in the fullness of joy that belongs to those who are in Jesus Christ. I pray that you will grow us in sanctification, that we would be known as a a people of the truth of God, taking in the truth and living by the truth, being sanctified by it. I pray that we will also be a church that is impassioned with the world around us, to see them come to faith. And I pray as well, Father, for our unity and our love, that you would grow us in these things and that we'll be active and cultivating and nourishing these things as a witness and a testimony of your son's sacrifice for sinners. We give you thanks in his name. Amen.